Welcome back to Mama Mystery. We have some new music. Do you love it? Yep. I like it. I think it's fun. It's a good change. We're back. We're fresh. We have, I don't know, like two months have gone by since we've come out with a new episode. So we're going to start fresh. And And we're going to be back on track. And we're going to be back on track. Weekly. Yes. So uh, we had a baby. Yeah, we had a baby. I had a baby, but we had a baby, and uh, he's really cute. His name's August, and that is why we have been kind of MIA lately, but we're back. That's all we're telling you about him. That's all we're going to (laughs) tell? Yep. Okay. Um, Well, anyway, so welcome back. We're so glad you're here. I am your host, Kelly. Austin. (laughs) I am your co-host, Austin. Sorry, I was eating a bite. Kelly's mad. We're husband and wife. She loves crime. I don't. Maybe you're new. Kelly loves crime. She gives this mama mystery with the murder history. Yes. I'm not that into it, but, and no, I'm not really, I'm really not that into it. I don't understand when we meet people and they go, are you really not into it? <laughs> yeah, I'm really not into it. Okay, okay but, but, can but, you clarify? but, Kelly does a fantastic job at telling these stories and it's enough to keep me intrigued. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty into it whenever she tells the stories. Yes. So, okay, but by saying you're not into it, like, you don't just go out and watch Dateline on your own accord. Like, you're into it when I tell you the stories and you give us your unscripted and unfiltered reactions. For sure. It's all very genuine. But, like, to say you're uninterested is more like you just have never heard of any of these stories. Yeah, like, genuinely. None of yeah. None of them. Yeah. So. So, anyway, that's the gist of our show. Yeah, um, so I guess we can go ahead and get started. First, I have something to say. Okay. All right. A lot of husbands and wives listen to this. Okay. Okay. So for the husbands and wives listening to the couples, and then for me and you, mm-hmm. I want you to look your significant other into the eye. Okay. Okay. You love them, right? Yeah. I'm scared. <laughs> and I want you to know that you are looking at the person that is statistically most likely to murder you. <laughs> Did you know that? I just learned that. Did you know that? Well, I mean, I should have learned it in all these episodes, but it's the truth. I mean, I absolutely think that's the truth because they always go to like the husband or the who's wife. Who's in the household. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Often when you're murdered, it's somebody who's closest to you. Yeah, so yeah, that so, makes sense. Yep. Anyway, so I just want to share that. Figured you'd so you should be scared. Yeah. You should be scared. Depends. If, you're, if your significant other is a murder podcast person that knows all about hiding bodies and shit, yes. murderers. I do think I could confidently hide a body. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So today's episode, okay? We often talk about miscarriages of justice on this show. And for our first show in almost two months, I chose a story about the biggest miscarriage of justice that I think I've ever seen. In a glaringly obvious homicide case, the police in this story have completely failed a Philadelphia family. And I'm being very genuine when I say this. If you disagree with me at the end of this episode, please tell me why. Because I'm having trouble understanding how anyone could see it as anything but what it is. And we got thick skin. Yeah, you can be honest. You can say, hey, I disagree with you, Kelly. I think you're stupid. Please don't, though, because it... I actually don't have that thick of skin. Shut up. (laughs) Bring it on. All right. So today we are talking about the mysterious death of Ellen Greenberg. So Ellen Ray Greenberg was born on June 23rd of 1983. She's the only child of Dr. Josh Greenberg and his wife, Sandy. 
Growing up, she was vivacious, joyful, social. She loved to cook, loved fashion. Her mom, Sandy, described her as well-rounded. Ellen and her dad enjoyed watching sports together. And she was a beautiful, beautiful girl. So she was very driven, very successful, receiving not just one, but two master's degrees in education with a specialty in reading. She accepted a position as a first grade teacher at Juniata, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Juniata Park Academy in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So she cared very deeply for her students. She loved retelling stories of some of the funny things her first graders would say, which I can totally appreciate having a first grader, some of the stuff that comes out of her mouth just really stops me in my tracks. So yeah, I can appreciate that. In 2007, Ellen was set up on a blind date with Sam Goldberg, who was a TV producer for NBC at the time. They truly hit it off. And after three years of dating, they got engaged in 2010. I'm going to interrupt real quick. Okay. That's what I kind of do sometimes. Some of you enjoy it. Some of you don't. Sorry. (laughs) Part of the show. Part of the show. Conversation. You don't like it. Sorry. Um, Man, a blind date. Mm-hmm. Blind dates are... First of all, I feel like a blind date nowadays, although still maybe awkward or whatever you want to call it, isn't like it used to be. No, You couldn't look not. at somebody up on Facebook and say, oh, look, they're cute. Or, oh, they're not cute. In 2010, you could, oh, though. Oh, okay, 2010. Okay. Or, well, I know. I guess it was 2007. They got engaged in 2010. Well, I guess you know, Facebook probably just been starting. Yeah, around. it was pretty I don't fresh. know. My point is just, man, a blind date is like, wow, brave. But even back in the day, mm-hmm. man... Wild things about. Yeah, scary. That's all I have. <laughs> okay. Back to the show. So on January 26th of 2011, that's where this story really begins. Ellen was heading into work when she called her mom to vent about some of her stressors. She was dealing with some anxiety lately, and on this particular day, grades were due um, for school, and she admitted that she was feeling kind of overwhelmed with classroom work and some changes in regulations within the school district. But school actually ended up getting called off that day due to a snowstorm that had rolled in. So Ellen unexpectedly got off around noon and headed home. So later that day, around 6.40 p.m., a 911 call was made from Ellen's fiancé of three years, Sam Goldberg. And according to the initial report, Sam told investigators that he left for the gym, which was located inside the building, and that was around 4.45 p.m., He returned around 5.15, 5.30, and he was unable to get into his apartment. His key would open the door, like it it would unlock the the door, but the door was stopped by the slide bar lock, which was located inside, right? So you could only lock it from the inside. So Sam starts calling and texting Ellen, telling her to open the door, but she's not responding to anything. And he actually texts her nine times, and the texts read like this. Hello, open the door. What are you doing? I'm getting pissed. Hello, you better have an excuse. What the fuck? Ah, you have no idea. So finally, he's had enough and he bursts through the door, breaking the slide bar lock on the other side. According to the layout of their apartment, when you open the door, the living room is straight ahead and then the kitchen is immediately to your left. There are two bedrooms on either side of the apartment, but when you open the entry door, it blocks your view of the kitchen until you close the door. Does that make sense? So when you open the door to the apartment, it kind of blocks your view of the kitchen until you close the door and then you can look in the kitchen. Okay. 
So once Sam entered the apartment and closed the door, he found Ellen covered in blood, sitting propped up against some cabinets on the floor of their kitchen. Oh, that is scary shit right there. If true. So he calls 911, and I'm going to play you a recording of that 911 call. Help, I need, I need a everything now. I just, I just walked to my apartment. My fiance's on the floor with blood everywhere. What is the address? 4601 Flat Rock Road. Please come, help, 4601 now. 4601 Flat Rock Road. Is this a house or apartment? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. It's an apartment. What apartment number? <laughs> Please hurry, please. Where is she bleeding from? She, I don't know. I can't tell. She's... No. So you have to calm yourself down in order to get you some help. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. She. Okay. I don't know. I, I'm looking at her right now. She. I don't. I can't see anything. She didn't. There's nothing broken. She's bleeding. Ellie. You don't know where she's bleeding from, can you? Ellie. Blood coming from. It's. I think her head. I think she hit her head. I think. I think but it's all everywhere. Okay, it's everywhere. She might have fallen. Do you know yeah. what happened? She, she, she may have slipped his blood on the on the table. Her, her face is a little purple. Okay, hold on for rescue for her. Stay on the phone. Uh, 4601 Flat Rock Road. Please hurry. 4601 Flat Rock? Yes. What's wrong? I I went downstairs to go work out. I came back up. The door was latched. My fiance's inside. She wasn't wasn't answering. So after about a half hour, I decided to break it down. I see her now just on the floor with blood. She's She's not responding. Okay. Is she breathing? I... Look at her chest. I need you to calm down, and I need you to look at her chest. It's really. I don't think she. I really don't think she is. Listen to me. Someone's on the way. Look at her chest. Is she flat on her back? (laughs) She's on her back. Look at her chest and tell me if it's going up and down, up and down. I don't see her moving. Okay. Do you know how to do CPR? I don't. Okay. I can tell you what to do. Okay. Until they get there, I want you to keep her. Oh God. Hello. Yeah, hi, okay. Are you willing to do CPR with me over the phone so they can I, get, I, I have to, right? Okay, so get her flat on her back, bare her chest, okay? You want to rip her shirt off. Okay, kneel down by her side. Oh, my God. Allie, please. Listen, listen, you can't freak out, sir, because you Okay, I'm trying not to, I'm trying not to. Her shirt won't come off, it's a zipper. Rip oh, my off. God, she stabbed herself. Where? She fell in a knife. Oh, no, her knife's sticking out. Her what? There's a knife sticking out of her heart. Oh, she stabbed herself? I, I guess so. I don't know where she fell on it. I don't know. Okay, well, don't touch it. Okay, so, so I'm just about to let her down. Here now? I mean, what do I do? No, I mean, you can't. If the knife is in her chest, it's going to be kind of hard for you to do CPR at this time. Oh, no. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Okay, so I'm just going to stop it right there because I think that kind of gives you the gist of the 911 call. I. I loved your reaction though, because it is exactly what my reaction was. So, so go ahead. Well, I'm just, I, and, and I, I, know for, I never know what's going to happen in these, okay? So I don't want to eat my words because I've said stuff before and people think I'm insensitive. I'm just, I'm just giving you unfiltered my first reaction. Mm-hmm. As I'm listening to it all the way through until the part where he says, oh my God, there's, oh, there's a knife on her chest. Wow. Holy moly. Yeah. Until that, I'm sitting there thinking, this sounds like, again, I don't. Like I'm not trying to insist. I'm just saying how it goes. Even if I didn't hear that part, it all you try to like, you know, pick up on uh, their, what they're saying, how they're saying it, their tone, everything. 
and it comes across as very much like I'm trying to script this like I'm freaking out. So mm-hmm. like, oh my God, oh wow. Like you're saying what you think you're supposed to say. It's kind of how it comes across. Versus like a genuine, I'm a freaking mess over right. this. Or, you know, and I get that sometimes you're in shock, but I mean, it just sounds weird. Then I jaw dropped, literally. I was looking at Kelly when it got to the point where it says, oh, holy moly, there's a knife in her chest. She wow. stabbed herself. She may have fallen on well, it. she fell on it. I yeah, don't that know. that part just sounds like complete horse shit. So imagine this, because this is the immediate problem that I had when I heard this 911 call. He's walking into the kitchen, okay? If she is propped up on the floor... She's sitting on the floor, but she's leaned up against the cabinets, right? How do you not freaking see the knife sticking out of her chest that entire time? You're checking for a pulse. You're checking to see if she's breathing. How do you not see the handle sticking out of her chest? And then, and then you go, pull up her shirt. Oh, oh God, there's this, oh God, there's a knife. She And when you say she could have fallen on it. But she's sitting back well, up and, on it. And then, yeah. And then you also say she stabbed herself. Who stabbed themselves? Okay, so we're gonna, that's a really good question, Austin, and we're gonna get to that point because that becomes a huge point of contention in this whole story. But I also wanna add too, you know, a lot of times when you listen to 911 calls, you listen for a sense of urgency, right? A sense of, you know, if, if somebody is innocent and they're calling for help for someone that they love that's been hurt, they're like, please come send help right now. And he does that in the beginning until they say, I'm going to tell you how to do CPR. And he's like, well, I guess I have to, right? Mm -hmm. Are you serious? That's your response? Like if someone was telling me how to help you, if I just found you, the love of my life on the floor, and they're giving me instructions that might hopefully possibly save your life. Okay. Okay. Tell me what to do. Let me put you on speakerphone and I'm going to do it. Like you just power through, you do it. You don't like, well, I guess I I have to, right? I don't think logic would kick in in the moment. No. Like logic to be like, well, shoot, if I don't do it, they could Man, die. this is going to get kind of messy. To. Yeah, I mean, my hands are going to get dirty. Are you sure? Like, right. I might ruin my outfit. Right. I, so, it's weird. It's super weird. I feel like there's a lot of problems I have with that 911 call. Mm-hmm. So, but anyway, when Ellen was found, she was fully clothed. She was wearing a zipped up hoodie on top of a t shirt. She had sweatpants on and Ugg boots. Holes were found in her shirt that were consistent with underlying stab wounds. And the medical examiner counted 20 stab wounds to her body, including stab wounds to the back of her head and neck. Which something that you've told me in the past, and I think it's interesting. So people probably know this or have listened, but stabbing in that many stabs is a very like, uh, what's the word? Personal. Personal attack. It's very like just vicious and like Mm. you, like... There was no remorse or no, like, I'm going to stop doing this. It's like, like a fit of rage. Town. Yeah, yeah, that's the word I was looking for, rage. Mm-hmm. Going to town on it's crazy. Yeah, it's a very passionate crime. Mm-hmm. So at first, there didn't appear to be any evidence of a struggle in the apartment. Nothing appeared to be missing. Three laptops were still present in the apartment, as well as Ellen's engagement ring, which she did not have on at the time. In Ellen's nightstand, three prescription bottle or pill bottles were found for um, Xanax, Clonopin, and Ambien. What is Clonopin? Clonopin, I think it's like an anti-anxiety gotcha. medication. Ambien helps you sleep. Xanax, Xanax is also um, anti-anxiety, I believe. So anyway, in Ellen's purse, there was a little notebook, like a journal, with notes that Ellen had written about her state of mind that was last dated 10 days prior on January 16th. And we'll get to that in a second. But when detectives spoke with Ellen's parents, 
Her mom said that she had just spoken with Ellen on the phone that morning, and while Ellen was on her way to work, she admitted she had been struggling with some anxiety since the end of last year, but that she was getting professional help. Her psychiatrist, Dr. Ellen Berman, was shocked when she heard the news of Ellen's death. She told detectives that she had only been in three times, but was scheduled to come in the very next day on the 27th. And she told detectives that Ellen admitted to struggling with feeling pressure at work and that she didn't know if she should quit or just work through it, but that that was really her only stressor. She never complained about her relationship with Sam. In fact, when he came up in conversation, Dr. Berman noted that Ellen smiled when she talked about him. Dr. Berman asked if there was ever any emotional or physical abuse in their relationship and Ellen denied it. And she also put in her notes that Ellen did not seem suicidal. So when detectives accessed her computer's search history, they found that on January 10th, somebody had Googled terms like quick suicide and painless suicide. However, it was later found that those weren't actually like direct searches. It was more like clicking a link that came up that came up from another post. Does that make sense? Like a suggested type thing? Yeah. There was also a balcony to the apartment, but the apartment was on the sixth floor and the snow outside was completely undisturbed, leaving only one point of entry for the apartment, which according to Sam was locked by that slide lock, which would only be lockable if you're inside the apartment, right? Mm -hmm. But it turns out there's actually a lot of YouTube videos that show you how you can lock a slide lock from the outside. You can like lock it or unlock it. So there's ways you can you leave can like, the apartment and still lock it. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah. You can slam the door shut. You can use a rubber band. I mean, there's like all these different ways. So anyway, due to all these initial findings, the police quickly ruled Ellen's death as a suicide. But the next day, when the medical examiner performed Ellen's autopsy, like I said earlier, he found 20 stab wounds, 10 of which were to the back of her neck and head. That tells you everything that it wasn't her. Exactly. You would think, I right? I don't know how it's like possible. Most of the wounds were superficial, like only a fraction of a centimeter deep. But there was one rather large gash to the back of her head, which measured about six and a half centimeters long, and it had smooth edges, indicating that it was done with a smooth knife, not a serrated knife. Additionally, there was a 12 and a half centimeter serrated knife that was still lodged in her chest about 10 centimeters deep. So there are two knives that were used in her death. So Ellen and her family are Jewish, and in the Jewish religion, it's customary to bury the deceased as soon as possible after death. So the day after her autopsy, two days after Ellen's death, her funeral was held. Shortly before her funeral, her family was informed that the medical examiner determined her death to be a homicide, which really shouldn't have come as such a big surprise to anybody, right? Especially when you consider that she had 20 stab wounds and only 1% to 3% of suicide attempts are done by self-stabbing. It's not only uncommon, but to stab yourself 20 times and with two different knives, it just does not make sense. It almost seems impossible. Yes. But the day after her funeral, the day after Ellen's family was told that her death was ruled a homicide... The Philadelphia Police Department backtracked their statements, saying the death of Ellen Greenberg has not been ruled a homicide. Homicide investigators are considering the manner of death as suspicious at this time. 
So now you have conflict between the medical examiner's office saying that her her manner of death is a homicide and the police department saying, well, we're not sure. I mean, it's suspicious, but we don't know yet. So we're, we're uh, sorry. I hope I didn't miss it. What the two knives? Mm-hmm. It was that, that just a comment and then everybody just said, okay, move on. Nobody, yeah. Nobody's like questioning. Nobody in the police department is questioning it. And so just so I'm clear, it was mm-hmm. one smooth knife in the back of the head. Mm-hmm. That's kind of surface one, mm-hmm. and then a different knife for all these other stabs. Well, at least a different one for the one that was in her chest. The the fatal or assumingly fatal um, stab oh. wound to her chest that nicked her heart was done with a serrated knife, but the gash that was left on the back of her head was done with a smooth knife. Okay, interesting. So, yeah, why aren't these two on the same page? It's really uncommon for a medical examiner and a police department to be on two different pages or to disagree with each other. And eventually the medical examiner changed Ellen's manner of death to suicide at the request of the Philadelphia police department. And this is so backwards to me because listen, I have respect for police, but they are not medical experts. It's not their job to determine how somebody died. That is the medical examiner's job. Mm -hmm. So I can see why, at first glance, it might appear to be a suicide, albeit a strange suicide, right? There were no defense wounds, no sign of a struggle, nothing missing from the apartment, undisturbed snow on the balcony, and a door that had to be locked from the inside. The neighbors didn't hear anything except for when Sam was locked out and pounding on the door to get in. The blood was all concentrated in the kitchen, nowhere else, and even the knife used to stab Ellen only had her DNA on it. So I can see why those facts by themselves might lean you towards suicide, right? Super weird, but yeah. Yes. But once you dig a little deeper to the details, that's when questions arise. It appeared that Ellen was literally in the middle of making a fruit salad. There was a strainer on her kitchen counter that was being used to rinse some blueberries, and there was a freshly cut orange sitting nearby. So she's literally in the middle of making it. Her stab, and, and, and you don't just real quick. Sorry mm-hmm. to interrupt you. Yeah, falling on a knife, yeah, like that. Like, like the fact that I don't know that, like that crossing his mind during the police the nine one one call mm-hmm. to say she could have fallen on it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And then there's twenty. It's like yeah, I don't know. That's just weird. Yeah. Back to back to what you're saying. And I, I just, you know, when you think of like the chronological order, like, okay, she's making a fruit salad. What would set her off in the middle of making a fruit salad that says, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm just going to take my own life actually with 20 stab wounds. Right. That just is bizarre to me. Her stab wounds all varied in degree of depth from just nicks of about 0.2 centimeters to about three inches deep with the final exception of the one to her heart, which was about four inches deep. Also noted were bruises all over her body in various stages of healing and with no apparent explanation of how they got there. In total, there were about 11 bruises on her arms, stomach, and legs. And when I say they're all in various degrees of healing, that tells you, if you don't already know, that they've happened over a course of time. This is like repeated beatings. Mm -hmm. So 10 of these stab wounds were on the back of her neck, which we'll come back to in a second. I just want you to place that in your mind. But the investigators still remained unwavered in their opinion that her death was a suicide. 
Just a couple days after her death, a police spokesperson said that they were leaning towards suicide and looking into mental issues she might have had, which is such a slap in the face to her family. Ellen had already admitted to her mother that she was stressed out about work, but could that alone have really driven her to commit suicide? In such a violent manner, too. Yeah, She was getting married that August. She had just sent out save the date cards days before her death. And yes, planning a wedding can be stressful, but she never complained about her relationship or the planning. Debbie Schwab was one of Ellen's best friends, and she noticed a change in Ellen in the months leading up to her death. She said Ellen went from being one of the happiest, most bubbly person she knew to being filled with anxiety. She said... Quote, she kept saying it was because of school, but she was very vague about everything. If I asked her anything, there would be a long silence. Like, she just didn't want to talk about it. I'm just guessing here. To me, it sounds like an abusive relationship that you're embarrassed to talk about. You don't want to back out of the situation because you're out to get married. There's so much social pressure because you're engaged. Mm-hmm. And a wedding's coming out. And you already sent out Save the Dates. And... It's ultimately like an embarrassing situation. Mm-hmm. So not talking about it isn't the craziest thing in the world. Being ridden with anxiety, taking anxiety medications isn't mm-hmm. the craziest thing in the world. No. Oh my gosh. I feel like everybody should be medicated. I mean, maybe that's, you know, whatever. You can have your opinions on that. But I take a medicine. I would be I would be a mess without it. I mean, it, it just keeps me regulated. It keeps me normal. Like I feel like I know so many people who are on medication and the stigma that has come with that, I think has softened a lot over time, but maybe at this time in 2010 or 11, maybe the stigma was still kind of high about that stuff. People were a little more hush-hush about being on it. Yeah. Well, regardless of the medication, I think that people if in an abusive relationship, a lot of times are embarrassed, but continue mm-hmm. to go back and Oh, for sure. Especially when you have a, a, a wedding coming up. Right. You don't want to disappoint people who are planning on coming. You don't want to disappoint family members. I know somebody personally who went through with a wedding only to get divorced shortly after because the thought of canceling the wedding was much harder than the thought of just getting divorced shortly after. And I can actually, I can understand where someone's head would be at with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... When Ellen started getting professional help, she was prescribed medication, which, like I mentioned earlier, was found in her nightstand. But in Ellen's system, toxicology reports found only the prescribed amount. So she wasn't mixing. She wasn't overdosing. However, Klonopin and Ambien do list suicidal thoughts or behaviors as possible side effects. So detectives on this case stood by their ruling of suicide steadfastly. They believed that she was severely anxious, found in a locked apartment with no defensive wounds. And to explain away the quantity of stab wounds, they said that they were likely test or hesitation marks. Like she was just inflicting these wounds to test out the pain as she was considering killing herself. I'll eat my words if I'm wrong at the end of this. I think that's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, I know that... I know that uh, there's like a trigger warning here when I say this for self-harm, but I know that people who cut, they kind of, I guess a part of the reason for cutting is to either like misdirect the pain you feel inside to a more physical pain that's on your body. So like I can, I can see where maybe that logic is trying, is, is coming from, but in the event of killing yourself, like to test out the pain, I think that once you reach that conclusion that you you want to take your own life, 
you just do it. But I don't, I don't know. I haven't been there. So um, it's kind of a sensitive topic. I'm just going to go ahead and move on. <laughs> so to further bolster their case, detectives sought out the professional opinion of a neuropathologist. They sent this neuropathologist a portion of Ellen's spinal cord that was hit by the knife <clears throat> when the stab wounds were inflicted on the back of her neck, right? According to Detective John McNamee, the neuropathologist who conducted the exam told police that the spinal cord sheath was hit, but that the cord was not severed. This would have caused a loss of sensation or numbness, which would have then allowed her to stab herself repeatedly and maybe not feel it. So like maybe there was a loss of sensation, but I don't know. I'm, I'm still not, I'm still not quite buying it. So at this point, Ellen's parents feel like they're nearing the end of the road. They're running out of the options if they want justice for Ellen. With the police department ruling her death as a suicide, Ellen's parents felt like nobody was really on their team. Nobody was looking any deeper into Ellen's case. And they're really frustrated. So the Greenbergs obtained a lawyer, a new lawyer, former state attorney. State Attorney General Walter Cohen, who filed a public records request to get the police case file. However, they were denied access. So Walter Cohen pressed again. And this time, Ellen's family was allowed access to the file, but they had to come to the building to access it. And they weren't allowed to take any pictures or make any copies of anything. And at this time, they also garnered the help of Tom Brennan, who was a police veteran and former chief of the Dauphin County detectives. So as he's looking through the crime scene photos, he noticed that in one of the pictures of Ellen, blood was streaming on her face horizontally from her nose to her ear, which would indicate that, that she, she was laying down. Yes. That as she played out, she was laying down. Sorry to interrupt. I get it. Get yeah. Like... Well, no, because it's basic laws of gravity. Mm -hmm. Anybody should have an appreciation for that. But remember, Sam insisted that when he found her, she was propped up against the cabinets in the kitchen. So that doesn't make any sense. Then they started looking for that neuropathology report done on Ellen's spinal cord. But the only acknowledgement that they found was on her autopsy report. And it was like a side note. There was no neuropathy report and not even an invoice for the pathologist's work. In an email, that neuropathologist, Dr. Rourke Adams, admitted that she did do contract work for the medical examiner's office but admitted that without an invoice or report on file, quote, I would conclude that I did not see the specimen in question, although there is a remote possibility that it was shown to me. However, I have no recollection of such a case, end quote. So she never saw her? That's what she's saying. So either someone's pulling that out of thin air and throwing it on there to, to help their suicide theory stick, or maybe she saw it in passing, kind of just like, hey, can you proofread this for me? Does this look like something was nicked? And she's just like, yeah, yeah, it, maybe it was nicked, but not severed, and then passes mm -hmm. it on. So the next step naturally then, right, would be to re-examine that portion of Ellen's spinal cord, right? Get a confirmation on the damage done. Because if her spinal cord was severed, Austin, there's no way she could have inflicted that fatal final stab wound to her own heart. Mm -hmm. So Tom Brennan gets a hold of Dr. Wayne Ross, a pathologist, to examine her spinal cord sample. And he concluded that one of the stab wounds penetrated Ellen's cranial cavity and, quote, severed the cranial nerves and brain. As a result, she would experience severe pain and impaired or loss of consciousness. Oh, 
end quote. Like suck so bad to hear too, because you know she suffered then. But, like as you'd imagine from from a stab. Like but oh you know, yeah, like, and especially know. twenty. Yeah, yeah. But he also notes in this report, Austin, quote: "There was evidence of strangulation. There was a mark over the front of her neck, which was consistent with a fingernail mark. There were multiple bruises under the neck and in the strap muscles over the right side of the neck." The patterns were compatible with a manual strangulation. End quote. Oh my gosh, you get goosebumps. I hate. I get the goosebumps because that means something crazy was discovered. Mm-hmm. He also acknowledges the bruises on her body consisted, or were consistent with, a repeated beating. And in his conclusion, he says, "quote The scene findings were indicative of a homicide." End quote. So in October of 2019. Ellen's parents filed a civil suit against the Philadelphia Medical Examiner's Office and the doctor who performed her autopsy to change the manner of death from suicide to either homicide or at the very least undetermined. In January of 2020, the Philadelphia Court of Common Pleas allowed the case to proceed and the Office of the Attorney General reopened the case for review. However, last week on February 17th, the Pennsylvania Attorney General's office finished their review and determined that her death was a suicide. No! What? I don't get it. I Does don't get it. Does this dude like, have deep pockets or know people or what? I don't know. So this dude's Austin. running around free, free man, all these years. Sam is now married and has two kids. He's what? living in New York. He has never been charged with any crime. And listen, I'm not... I'm not trying to imply that it was Sam, okay? It could have been anybody. Honestly, it could have been anybody. It could have been someone other than Sam. My instincts, just like you said at the beginning, which I did not know you were going to say this, statistically, the person- I didn't know I was going to say that and it was going to click with this. Yeah. I saw it on a freaking reel on Instagram, like a TikTok. Yeah. This chick was doing a bridal speech and she said, everybody and your husband and groom, and it was like a big funny moment. I was like, that's funny. I'll say that on the podcast. Yeah. Statistically. Statistically, it was him. Yes. That is crazy. But factually, we don't know that for sure. I don't want to say this and then get some sort of like letter in the mail, but I don't I always get think it's it. crazy when these people are running around free and they could listen to this. I know. You always say that. Because I do. I think it's nuts. I think that if, if I was the guy that lost my wife and mm-hmm. then everybody was talking about it and 10 years later there's podcasts about it and stuff, mm-hmm. I would be listening to them. Oh, yeah. And if I was innocent... I'd probably email the podcast host. I don't know. It's just freaking weird. How does he get how? with I, I don't know. How does, I'm not saying... Whatever. That's crazy. My Okay, so my instinct as to why it still remains listed as a suicide is because sometimes... Not all the time. I'm just saying sometimes, because like I said in the, earlier, I do have respect for police. But I do think sometimes, as we've seen in some of these stories, police departments get really proud and they don't want to admit that they've made a mistake. And we've seen it in cases in the past. And I, I feel like that's what's happening here is that they don't want to admit that the investigation was shoddy. Like they had allowed the day after her death, they had allowed some of Sam's family members to come into the apartment and gather some of her things for the funeral. So that would have completely botched any kind of evidence left behind. They had a cleaning crew come the next day, like a professional cleaning crew to clean up all the blood and everything. And we've, we've, there's been multiple cases you've read stories of where police departments admitted wrong or they 
that they had the same situation. Yeah. Sometimes they do, but sometimes they don't. And I feel like that's kind of where my initial instinct goes. Like, I don't know that it's because Sam has deep pockets. I mean, I can see that that's a possibility, but when I just politics, who do you know? Or yeah, or that, but I just feel like, I don't know the, the conflict between the medical examiners and the police officer or the police department is so unusual to me. And the medical examiner did say that they felt pressured by the police department to change the manner of death from homicide to suicide. So why? Why? And where did this happen again? Philadelphia. (coughs) Bless you. Excuse me. (laughs) And he lives in New York now. Yes. I just think it's interesting. Gosh, that is so insane. Yeah. So the Greenbergs continue to fight for justice for their daughter, and they are in the process of suing the city of Philadelphia, still trying to change that manner of death. I don't imagine that they'll ever give up the fight for their daughter. Hell hath no fury like a parent who has lost a child. So I don't see this ending anytime soon, but... Wild. Let me know your thoughts. Message me on mama.mystery on Instagram. Leave us a review if you feel so inclined. Make it kind, please. And yeah, yeah, that's it. Until next week, thanks for listening. Mama Mystery.